Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. You ready for this, Aaron? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome, listeners, to the 74th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets and financial planning. We have a surprise co-host this week. It is not Mr. McEvely back from his honeymoon, but the one and only Aaron Kramer. I'm back. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Um, Mark was unable to make the podcast uh, today for this week, so we are blessed and lucky to have the one and only Mr. Kramer with us. So thank you again, sir. Um, Before we dig in, Aaron, let's start off uh, with a recap of performance for the month and year of the major indices that we track. And I'll go ahead and do this, Aaron. Um, These numbers are as of the market close of November 30th, and this data is from Coifin. So we'll start first, listeners, with the S&P 500 uh, index uh, for the month. Uh, and this is, again, for November, was up a massive 10.64% for the year, 12.09. It's interesting. Strong in the last in the last month or so. Pretty much got its whole return for the year <laughs> in a month. Dow, Don- Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, up 11.82% uh, for the month of November. And then Aaron for the year, 4.01. Yeah, so it's turned positive, which is great. Back in the green. NASDAQ composite for the month of November, 10.84. Wow. And for the year, now up 34.79. Next is going to be the IWM uh, ETF. That stands for Exchange Traded Fund. That's the ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 small cap index. For the month, a massive 18.24%. And for the year, 10.48, 10.48, Aaron. Yeah, small caps is really starting to come alive. They really are. Month. I think yeah. there's some optimism that with the uh, vaccine optimism mm-hmm. and in 2021 around the corner, people are thinking those small caps are going to start outperforming again. Yeah, yeah. Vanguard International ETF, X United States for the month of November, Aaron, 12.62. And then for the year, up 4.55. Pretty strong. Yeah. And then we'll cover the three bonds that we usually discuss versus the three-month T-bill. That yield currently sits at 0.08%, so that's eight basis points. The two-year Treasury sits at 0.15, that's also known as 15 basis points. And the 10-year Treasury sitting at 0.84. Not much movement in bonds over the past week. Um, Aaron, I'll just discuss a couple of the uh, big news headlines over the past week. And, you know, feel free to comment if you wish. Yeah. First one I got for listeners is the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed above 30,000 for the first time last Tuesday in the pre-Thanksgiving rally. It was fueled by uh, promising results from all these potential vaccines. Um, and then remember, Aaron, that the index dipped to 19,000 just back in March. It's had a very strong recovery, pretty V-shaped it really has. I mean, and again, you know, um, this kind of reminds me, if you go back and listeners listen to those podcasts we had in February and March, I'm really proud of the content, Aaron, that we produced at that time. I really feel that we were, you know, a level-headed, a good voice of reason and yeah. trying to provide really good perspective because going back to March, people couldn't look past the next week. Right. Yeah. And it's always easy to get out of the market 
it's the hard thing is deciding when to get back in. So exactly, that's Eric. why you just kind of stay true to your sort of long-term goals and objectives and sort of look past all the noise that's going on. Exactly, Aaron. And when I see this note about the Dow closing above 30,000, just goes and reminds me of the two guiding emotions in investing, fear and greed. And so you, you saw the fear aspect front and center in February and March. And I'm not saying we're in the greed phase of it at this point, but right. we're headed that way, it feels yeah, like. Yeah. Um, second point I wanted to make discussing big news headlines, Aaron, and current events from the past week. The second thing I have is consumer spending rose again in October. According to the government, it rose a half a percent. So we're starting to see some consistency in, in the consumer coming back. Yeah, Any comments? No, I think I think we'll see some strong consumer spending in the next report with with Christmas and Thanksgiving and holiday shopping. I think the consumer is going to still be be out and spending. And I think that that savings rate that's been at sort of all time highs is going to come down as well. I would agree with everything you just said there. And I think the um, the benchmark is pretty low for holiday spending this year. And so I think that's going to be due for a, a surprise. We'll, yeah, we'll see I if agree. our feelings there are accurate. Now, the other item I want to share with listeners, Aaron, is durable goods orders. Now, uh, as a reminder for listeners, durable goods are those things that last a long time that you purchase. Things like computers, dryers, dishwashers. Big appliances. Big stuff appliances, like that. right? Those rose in October by 1.3%. That's very good. Some pretty big numbers. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the reason that I wanted to highlight these for listeners as current events is it gives us a look to the real status of the American consumer. And with two thirds of our economy, consumer uh, consumption led, the tea leaves and the data that we're seeing is promising. Yeah, yeah, I think it's bullish for sure. Yeah, so that's why I wanted to kind of highlight that. Because sometimes, you know, you, you open up the newspaper, you go online to the news sites, you're not exactly seeing this type of information, right? You, right. You're seeing the doom and gloom, right? Now, next thing I have is um, 23 days until Christmas. All right. Now, uh, 20 trading days left in the year. So you take out holidays and weekends. Now, according to top down charts, a research firm that we track, they noted on November 28th that the market is positive for the month of December. 71% of the time, Aaron, since 1964, with an average return of 1.3%. Very strong. Very strong. Now, one thing that um, we will request that Jenna gets on our show notes um, is we have a chart that's from Top Down Charts um, that goes back to 1964, okay? And it shows the returns of the market, and the market in this case being the S&P 500 index. Aaron, it goes back to 1964 mm -hmm. to 2019, and it shows the average returns by month. And it also shows the degree of how often they're positive. So one of the comments you made on last week's podcast was December is one of the most positive right. months of the yep. year. And that this, is backed up and justified by this chart. Yep. And what's really interesting with it is, um, you know, September, which we know, which tends to be a poor month, does in fact come as the the weakest month going back to 1964. So I found this chart very informative. It also yeah. shows the best return, the worst return for a given month going back to 64. 
So I know, Jenna, you're going to work on getting this on our show notes for listeners. And then uh, as a reminder, how you access the show notes is you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com. You will hover over the podcast tab, and then you'll see the link for the show notes. And we have those uh, since we started doing them, Jenna. So they can go back if they listen to a previous uh, podcast, they'd have access to that. Okay. So next listeners, let's transition to tweets, articles, and research for the last week that caught our eye. Aaron, you okay if I start off? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I got a, I got a good one to start. This is from uh, Brian Lund's um, uh, research report. It's called the Lund Loop Report. And uh, I'm a subscriber to this report. I uh, reference his items um, often on the podcast. He had this piece of research from November 28th, Aaron, and it's a technical update on the S&P 500. So before I continue, Aaron, why don't you explain to the listeners, what is the difference between technical research and fundamental research? Okay, so sort of technical research is going to be looking at past historical prices and volume. So it's sort of using that historical historical data to define trends. Um, you're also looking at, at volatility, uh, sort of momentum, and where we're using historical data to sort of predict future future prices, essentially. Yep. So a lot of charting, a lot yep. of numbers, a lot of it's not going to be different this time. Right. History tends to repeat itself. Yeah, it tends so you're, to look you're at... You're finding those trends in the charts and the numbers. Exactly. It looks at how supply and demand is sort of impacting a stock price or an index price. And then you take that data... And it allows you to kind of forecast what the next moves will be based upon history. Exactly. Good exactly. way of saying it. Yep. You did and a great job there. Fundamental uh, fundamental analysis or research is going to be looking at sort of the basic uh, balance sheet, financial statements of a company, um, looking at P PE ratios, which is price to earnings. So more basic data that every publicly traded company has to report. That's right. And so for listeners, you know, we talk about earnings season every three months. So for the fourth quarter that we're in here of 2020, those publicly traded companies will report their earnings from the middle of January through the middle of February of 2021. And that's where people who do a lot of fundamental research, how much cash does the company have? What was their revenue? What was their net earnings? What was their tax rate? What's their dividend? All that stuff is considered fundamental research, yep. right? So um, this uh, piece that I took from the Lund, Lund, Loop, Lund Loop report is specifically technical in nature, okay? And I would like to quote what he said because um, I agree with this statement, okay? Quote, the price action of the S&P 500 over the past three weeks has been textbook perfect for a continuing rally. First, the index broke out of a narrowing range, then it spent two weeks moving sideways, consolidating, and digesting the move. And now it's turned back up and is basing right at all-time highs. You couldn't ask for more, except for a break higher next week, end quote. I mean, that's music to my ears. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a nice-looking chart, that's for sure. I guarantee when uh, Mark listens to the podcast <laughs> and sees this note, this is going to get him going. This is going to get him <laughs> excited. Get him excited. <laughs> it's going to get him excited. So I have two side notes to this, okay? And these are both going to be um, seeking comments from you, Aaron. The first is in regards to the volatility index, okay? Um, now, the volatility index is used to judge intraday volatility, or I should say intraday movements of stocks 
and this index is at a multi-month low. Any comments? Yeah, I, I think it has to do with, with certainty sort of around the election and one in general. Um, I, I just think that the stock market likes predictability, and then we sort of we've gotten that. So volatility or the amount of movement and, and volume has has gone down, and I think that's a good thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna steal this quote from you going forward in future podcasts, and I agree with everything you just said, which is the higher the predictability level, mm-hmm. generally speaking, the lower the, the volatility yep, is going to exactly. Be. And I, I and I think that's an accurate statement. So listeners, I will make sure when I quote that in the future, <laughs> I give Mr. Kramer credit for that statement. Now, the second thing I'd like some comments on from you, sir, is in regards to the SMH ETF. And for as a reminder to listeners, we talked about this a couple of months ago. The SMH is a very popular um, ETF that buys semiconductor stocks. And as a reminder, listeners, Mark and I were talking about how for a good part of this year, this index has been, in our opinions, a little bit of a leading indicator on the market. And with this index at an all-time high, when I did these notes on Mm -hmm. November 28th, what does that say to you, Aaron? I mean, it says says to me that it's still the safety trade. Nobody wants to sell technology right now. Um, It's... I think it's where the puck's going in the future as well. Um, yeah, I just think it's with the with the nature of the coronavirus and people adding technology to their lives. Um, I, I don't think semiconductors are going away anytime soon. I think it's going to continue to be a leading indicator. I would agree with that statement. And I, and just to add on to what you said, and what I as you spoke, I thought about how the work at home phenomenon, this trend is not going to reverse course quickly. No, it's going to take some time. It's going to take time. And so things that come to mind are, as time goes on, companies will struggle with some sort of permanent work from home because it will degrade and water down things like productivity, Mm -hmm. creativity. But in the short term, for this example, I'll define as the next, say, one, two years, I think you're going to see the stay-at-home trend, and that's just going to exacerbate the desire and the need for technology. Yeah, and better performing technology. That's right. And so um, I would agree that this is definitely one of those indicators. And I'm not saying that you solely focus as your only forward looking indicator, but it's definitely one that I think you need to put some weight into. I agree. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I would like to send it over to you. Do you have one for the listeners? Yeah, yeah. So this is a uh, a sentiment survey from AAII. So um, this sentiment survey is looking at first-time optimism. So it's it's saying first-time optimism is above 40% on three consecutive weeks in nearly three years. Um, So what it's showing is uh, it's a little chart here. It's it's showing a survey for the week ending on uh, November 25th. And it shows that the survey um, is that 47.3% of investors or stock market members are bullish, and the historical average is 38%. So it's a big difference. What do you think that sort of means, Matt? So from my perspective, you know, we had three consecutive weeks above 40%, and it hasn't happened in three years. This is an extremely bullish indicator, in my opinion. I agree. And then you combine this, Aaron, with how much cash is on the sidelines— this is a good recipe. Yeah. And so what I will throw out there is it takes time for a lot of investors to get fully invested or to truly have a bullish stance in their portfolio. 
I think it's one thing to sit there and say, I'm bullish, but it's yet another for your portfolio to, to reflect justify that. it. Yeah. Right. And so this to me, a sentiment indicator, uh, sometimes being a contrarian is important, but due to how much cash is mm -hmm. on the sidelines still in the fact that people now are starting to turn more and more bullish, that says to me from a supply and demand matrix, we're going to be having some good demand in the month to come. Yeah, I agree. Um, the chart also, again, goes to show neutral or sort of people who are in the middle of being uh, bullish or bearish is at 25 percent. Um, and that's down 4 percent from the, the prior week. That's a big drop. That's a big drop. Um, and then the uh, the bearish uh, people are at 27.5 percent. Um, and that's up 1.1 percent from the prior week. And the historical average on the bearish is around 30. So I think that just goes to show how 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 bullish people are. Yeah. And you know, from a contrarian standpoint, if we start to see say that bearish indicator, let's say get close to, you know, 22, 23% and cash levels are right. lean across the whole mm -hmm. market, that's where we start to that's need to get strong, concerned. Yeah. Right? But I just don't see it yet. Jenna, let's make sure we get this chart up on the show notes as well for uh for our listeners so they can see what we're referencing. And uh, once again, Aaron, why don't you just quote where this came from so people hear that again? Yeah, so this came from uh, AAII.com. It's a sentiment survey. Yep. Um, Association of Individual Investors. Yep. All right. So I got one. Actually, no. Why don't you go again? You want me to go? All yeah, right, you go and go. It. All right. So um, this is a, uh, a blog post by Ben Carlson, um, and, and his blog is a wealthofcommonsense.com. Um, so there's it, it goes to say that there's generally three stages of growth for a successful investor. Um, in the, in the first stage is you sort of, I know everything. So you think you're sort of smarter than the, the average person. And, um, when you're first starting out, you, you don't know exactly what you don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, and that leads right into stage two is that, um, you sort of get to where I know nothing. So you've, you've made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. In you investing. start off, you get all the trades go right. And you're like, I got this down. Yeah. This is easy. Stocks just go up. And, and then, then time goes on. And you get stuff wrong. You get a lot of stuff wrong, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and it leads to stage two. Which I know nothing. And you sort of get, you might get a little upset with yourself or, or you learn from your mistakes. Um, and then stage three is sort of where you want to be, um, sort of in your investing life. It's, I know what I don't know. That's a big so, statement. That's a good one. I yeah. think that. Um, so you realize how hard, how hard the stock market is or any market, the bond market, whatever it may be. Um, and I think it just realizes that you need to sort of leverage all the, the tools you have, um, around you and go to people that can help you because it's not an easy thing. And for, for do it yourselfers, I think you need to leverage any, any tools you have. Um, so the last stage is difficult for many people in the finance world to figure out. Um, or even admit to themselves that it's it's difficult to let clients in on the fact that um, they have to master the universe and don't know what's going on with the markets. Yep, yep. Um, so is there anything you want to add to that? I mean, at the end of the day, it's there's obviously things that, you know, that we don't know. And right. we do the best that we can to look at overall trends, patterns, and then dig down. And that's why I think uh, our firm prefers to pick individual equities rather than a lot of broadly diversified funds, because we like to control what's underneath our clients' accounts and how they right, react. Right. Because ultimately, you know, 
going back to what Mark usually says on the podcast, focus on what you can control. Right. Right. And focus less on what you can't. Because as I think, Aaron, it's the things that you can't that tend to mentally bog down investors. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll continue to read on what he says about in the, in the article. Um, again, this is Ben Carlson and his uh, his blog is a wealth of common sense. So he says, uh, when I first started out in the investment business, I always I was always overly impressed with the smartest people in the room who seemed to have it all figured out and then what was going to happen um, in with the stock markets or in the markets in general. Yep. Uh, it took it took a while, but I eventually discovered it was those investors who had enough self-awareness to admit that they don't know what's going to happen next, and they didn't have it all, all the answers. The three most important words in finance are, I don't know, because the markets will humiliate you w- with the requisite of self-awareness to recognize your own deficiencies. <laughs> That's an awesome <laughs> sentence. And I love that. The three most important words in finance are, I don't, I don't know. know. Um, you know, for me, I think um, um, the most important words in finance, in my opinion, is it's different this time. Yeah. Right. I mean, how many times have I heard that? And I've been in the industry now for over 21 years. I've heard that so many times. You know, after 08 and 09, Aaron, it was the market's not going to come back. Right. It's different this time. We right. haven't had a great financial crisis since the since the 30s. Right. Right. Yeah. Or or COVID. It's different this time because we haven't seen a, a virus. Like we haven't this seen a pandemic a, like this that was global. Years. Right. Right. It's different this time, Aaron. Yeah. The market. This is March 23rd. Market bottom. <laughs> How could it come back? And it did. It always does. I'm sorry. Continue. I'm getting on a soapbox. <laughs> Jenna's going to start putting a soapbox by my chair. <laughs> Um, he goes on to say, it's actually quite freeing for yourself and your clients when you're willing to admit you don't know what's going to happen next. Um, useful financial advice does not have to be predicted on your ability to predict the future. In fact, pitching yourself as someone who can predict the future is the fastest way to create mismatch between expectations and reality. That's a big statement right there. It I is. like that sentence. It is. Eventually, you have to be disappointed or caught off guard when you're wrong. Honesty and transparency are now an edge in the financial services industry because information is so abundant. I love that. The, the old, old age of trust us, we got this is now over. Um, and then he has this his picture of E.F. Hutton. Oh, yeah. Um, that's before my time. So Back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, E.F. Hutton was, uh, you know, their big wirehouse brokerage firm. Yeah. Um, he goes on to say the name on the door doesn't matter as much as it once did because brands have moved from companies to individuals. Absolutely agree. Those individual brands are not only built by honest, uh, being honest with clients and prospects, but being more transparent than finance people were in the past. Uh, that's how you build trust as opposed to assuming it should be handed to you unequivocally. Yep. I think that's just sort of a general theme in, in finance now. The whole industry, you have to be more transparent um, just to do with regulation now. Yeah, um, I mean, back in the day when I got started in the industry, Aaron, it was almost felt like um, a situation where the guy behind the, the green screen had all the secret answers, and you had to work with these really big major brokerage firms in order to get access to right. those wonderful answers. <laughs> and obviously that's been totally blown up, right? and it's not that way anymore. Being transparent with how you invest, what you own, why you own it, what you won't invest in, and who you are personally. I, I think that's super important. It is. Um, and clients pick up on that really quick. Right. Yeah. Um, he goes on to say, most clients generally do business with people they like, respect, and trust. 
Honesty and transparency can build that trust faster than commercials or names on a sign. Absolutely. It's a great article. It's a great article. Um, Jen, I want you to put a link to that article uh, for listeners on the uh, on the show notes. That'd be, I think it'd be great for them. Any other comments, Aaron, on that article? No. No, well, I think building trust is the most important thing for clients. Um, Absolutely agree. Honesty and, being and transparency honest. yep. is how you do that. I love that. Okay. I'm going to switch gears then, if it's okay, Aaron. I'm going to uh, switch to a piece of research I saw from the Association of American Railroads. So, um, listeners, uh, to give you a preview, why I selected this one kind of goes in tandem with my uh, note last week, Aaron, regarding um, the shipping cost from uh, China for goods. Okay. And remember how I referenced that chart that we put on the show notes that showed a dramatic increase in shipping cost Mm -hmm. out from from items leaving China. Right. And the reason I highlighted that is it tells me that's a leading indicator on just global Globally, demand yep. for goods. We're not saying what type of goods. We're just saying a general big global demand. And I think when listeners were to see those show notes, they're going to see that dramatic yeah, rise. It's, it's right? substantial. So continuing on that same thought process, Aaron, I got this piece of data, again, from the Association of American Railroads, AAR, and they reported, Aaron, on November 25th, U.S. rail traffic for the week ending November 21st. For that week, total U.S. weekly rail traffic was up 2.5% compared with the same week a year ago. Think about that That's, for a second. That's interesting. So now you're starting to have the year-over-year comparisons better. Yeah, and that's, and that's without pre- coronavirus. Exactly. That's pre-COVID. So what does that tell you? When you see that data point, what does that tell you about the underlying status of the American economy? I think the economy is still strong. And I think there's a disconnect between what's happening with COVID and the, and the true economy. I would agree with that yeah. statement. And I think that's a big reason what you just said as to why people have the perception, how can the stock market be doing good when my local community does not seem to be doing good? Yeah, I think it, it adds back to the, the stock market's not the economy and the economy's not the stock market. Bingo. And so that is the number one point that people have to remember. And it could work opposite. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. So it could be a scenario where your local community is booming. And the national economy might not and or the stock market might not be. Right. So it doesn't always work one way. Okay. I got two more points on this. Total combined U.S. traffic for the first 47 weeks of 2020 saw a decrease of eight and a half percent compared to last year. Okay. So once again, if we think about this. The year-over-year comparison for just that one week was up 2.5%. But when you take into context, Aaron, year-to-date compared to 2019, it's down 8.5%. So what you're seeing is, as you mentioned, is things are coming back, Mm -hmm. and this rail data is really showing that. Now, again, similar to that data we talked about out of China, we don't know what specific goods really led this underneath it? Was it shipment of oil? Was it shipment of cars? Was it shipment of coal? I can't specify that. But what I do know is that the headline number is telling me the underlying economic strength is there. there. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. 
So any other comments you'd like to kind of throw out there regarding this? No, no, I think you, you hit on most of it. I love that. I, I just love trying to find this anecdotal data that's underlying, that kind of points to a general theme and of underlying it, strength. Yeah. And I think it just justifies where, where the where the stock market's at and why it's at all-time highs. Exactly. Or, or hitting exactly. That. And so I, I thought it was a good piece of, uh, of research. Okay, let's transition. Uh, it's time for our financial planning topic of the week. And in Mark's absence... Mr. Kramer, you want to do it for us? I will take it. All right, so I'm going to turn the uh, podcast over to you. Okay. Um, this week's financial planning topic um, comes from Taylor Schulte, uh, and it's on his blog, definefinancial.com. Um, this blog post is titled, What Does This Funny Word Mean, and Is It Right For You? Um, and that funny word is beneficiary. Um, so when you open up any type of investment or retirement account, um, you should always uh, make sure you list a beneficiary on the account. So... A beneficiary is a person who will inherit the account upon your passing. So it's not always fun to talk about this type of stuff, but um, it, it's, it's very important that you do. Um, so adding a be beneficiary to an account will make things a lot easier on the family member. Um, and most importantly, accounts with listed beneficiaries do not go through the probate process. That's a big so do you want to kind of explain what the what the opposite end of that if you didn't list a beneficiary would happen sure so the way probate works is if you have an asset that is does not have a direct transfer title on it mm -hmm. as you're insinuating it has to go through the estate process of probate that's where you have to go to the courts in your county mm -hmm. you have to provide a listing and when i say uh you the executor of the estate has to provide a listing of assets if there's a will in place, they have to present that, and it has to go through this formal process. This formal probate process is not clear-cut. It's not no. simple, and there are issues with it. I'll throw out a couple. Yeah. Is it okay if I go down yeah, this road? go ahead. <laughs> so one that, that comes up a lot is anybody can contest a will, okay? So God forbid something happens to you, Aaron. I could show up. And I could sit there and try to say to Michaela that, well, Aaron verbally promised me his Audi. <laughs> if something happened to him, he told me I get his Audi, right? Right. And that's because the probate process is completely public. Exactly. Right. And anybody can contest it. Right. They'll know exactly how much assets in this example that Mr. Kramer had. Right. Right. The other thing that's really messy with the probate process is dying without a will. And they call that dying intestate. Right. And what that means then is the government has a predetermined predetermined process as to how your assets are going to be distributed if you don't have a will. Right. And we talked about dying intestate in several podcasts ago because the perception is, is that, well, you know, higher net worth people have their act together. Their stuff would never go through probate. That's not it true. It happens. And we provided some examples where it happened. Right. And so uh, dying intestate means that obviously if you're married, everything goes to your spouse. If you're not married, it looks down to see if you have any children. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any children, it looks up to see if you have any living parents. If you don't have any living parents, it looks to see if you have any siblings. And if you don't have siblings, it gets really messy. Yeah. I'll turn it back to you, but the probate process yeah. is one you want to try to avoid if possible. Yeah, and beneficiaries are the way to do that. Um, so I'll just add that there's sort of two types of beneficiaries. Um, there's a primary beneficiary and a contingent beneficiary. Okay. So how that sort of works in the hierarchy is primary beneficiaries are going to take place first. So if you pass and your spouse pass, it would go to your primary beneficiary that you have listed. 
Um, and then contingents are going to be under that primary beneficiary. Um, so if, if you pass and your primary beneficiary passes, then it goes to your contingent. Um, and that's just sort of how the, how the process goes. Um, and you can also set up your beneficiaries either per stirpes or per capita. Matt, do you want to explain those two differences? Yeah, so um, the first has to do in regards to if you have a beneficiary, okay? Mm -hmm. And let's say that you had Michaela listed as your primary, Aaron. Right. Something happens to you, okay? And you have two contingents listed. Let's say you list me and Mark, okay? <laughs> and then so something happens to me when you would pass, that those assets, that 50% that's due to me would go to my kids. Right. Whereas the so other that's way how per stirpes works. Correct. And the other way, it would just all go to Mark uh, to, uh, to, yeah, to the contingents. So you have to figure out when you make that election, would you want in this example, Matt's share to go to his kids? Or do you want Matt's share to go to the other contingent in my example, Mark? That's great. Yeah, that's very helpful. All right. I think that's it for beneficiaries. So the only thing that comes to mind, a question I have as a follow-up, yeah. and I would like for you to clarify this. Let's say you're married. Mm -hmm. Do you have the ability, say, on a retirement account to list someone else as a primary beneficiary other than your spouse? It depends on the state. So I'll start with that. Um, in the short, yes, you can, but it's going to have to be notarized and signed by your spouse. So uh, in Ohio, that's the case. So if you want to list someone other than your spouse as your primary beneficiary on, say, a 401k, yep. your spouse is going to have to sign off on that, and it's going to have to be done under a notary. Yep. And so, you know, I think in today's age, when you have um, second marriages, as an example, mm -hmm. blended families, you're going to have some of those scenarios, yeah. right? And so I just want to kind of throw that out there, that it is a possibility, but there are some more hoops you have to exactly. jump through to make exactly. it happen. Can you think of any other instances that are maybe unique in that manner? Uh, this completely, by doing this, completely avoids probate. So, you know, let's say that something happens to you, Aaron, God mm -hmm. forbid, of course, and you have um, your lovely wife, Michaela, listed as the 100% primary beneficiary. Right. She does not have to wait for the probate process to finish up. No, essentially, she's just going to get the account in her name, and it's pretty much done. So in essence, not to sound morbid, once a um, custodian has that death certificate in hand, mm -hmm. they can process that really, really yeah, quick. in a matter of days. matter right. of days, where the probate process takes how long, Aaron? It could be up to six months six or more. Six months. Yeah. And that money's tied up. It's not like, in, in my example with you... It's not like Michaela can go to the courts and be like, I need money right now. Right. Because no. they're not going to release it. Right. And I think that's another important factor of listing beneficiaries. Yeah, I totally agree. Because people still got bills to pay during right. that time. Right. Right? Yeah. I think this is a great one. So uh, who was this from again, this topic? And where was so, it from? This was from Taylor Schulte on uh, definefinancial.com. That's his blog. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So um, I appreciate uh, you handling the financial planning topic of the week, Aaron. Very helpful Absolutely. and a very good one, I would say. Um, listeners, let's keep uh, those questions coming. Anything that uh, you're seeing in the news or anything that we've commented on over the past couple of weeks in the podcast world. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we only have about 20 trading days left in this year. I know there are many of us, Aaron, that are hoping to turn the calendar um, sooner rather than later, <laughs> as 2020 has been quite a challenging right. year for many of our friends and family this year. Um, so listeners, um, thank you for listening to the 74th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We look forward to catching up with you next week and have a good weekend. 
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.